So, there are a couple of ways to teach the Bible and, and to preach through the Bible, okay? One way is to take like one verse or one phrase and kind of put it under a microscope and pull it apart and spend a whole bunch of time learning it, looking at one little piece of the Bible. Another way would be to look at either a theme in Scripture or a whole book of the Bible and do that over a series of weeks. We do that all the time where we'll look at one particular theme or something and stretch that out and make kind of a series out of it. I'm going to do neither of those things today. I'm actually going to fly through half of a gospel in 30 minutes. you think we can do it? You think we can get through the whole thing? The good news is it's not Luke because Luke is a lot longer. It's actually Mark, which is the shortest one. So... Um, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of Mark. Specifically, we're going to look at Jesus' interactions with the disciples in Mark. So we're going to be hopping from one story to another a little bit today, which I'm going to reward those of you who brought your good old-fashioned print Bibles. Who, who brought a, a good old-fashioned Bible with them today to church? You can hold it up. In, uh, in elementary, we'd give you a lollipop for bringing your Bible. I'm not kidding. We really do that. The main reason we do that is because we want kids to understand how to use this Bible because there's nowhere else in America they're going to learn how to look up a chapter and a verse. It just won't happen anywhere else. So we really, I just try and encourage them to use it. We open it. We look things up. And hopefully that, that helps them know how to read their Bible going forward. It's a really important skill. So um, those of you who don't have Bibles, you just have apps, you're going to have to be kind of on your toes today or your thumbs, maybe, as we go through this. But I'm sure you all can do it. You're the 1115 crowd. You're fired up. You're ready. Are you guys ready? Okay, I'm used to teaching kids, so I need a lot of audience participation today. You guys can hoop and holler and yell, and I'm also a heckler, so Pastor Cody, you can heckle me as as much as you want, okay? It's only fair. Okay, so Mark spends more time in than the other Gospels do in these interactions with Jesus and his disciples. And that's mainly because Mark was writing, um, he was friends with Simon Peter, the, the disciple. And he used a lot of Simon Peter's firsthand accounts of his interactions with Jesus when he was writing his book, which is, is pretty awesome because that also means that Mark includes a lot of the stupid things that the disciples say, which is really awesome. And so we're going to look at a lot of those today. And there's also a lot of really peculiar things in Mark. Uh, one thing I do encourage you to do, uh, this is a total aside and this is for free, but if you, if you have the time where one day maybe you gotta, you're on a rainy Saturday afternoon wanting to do some quiet time, try and read an entire gospel from beginning to end just in one sitting. Uh, Mark is only about 20 pages long. It's, it's about the same as you do like you know, a Tom Clancy novel or something. Um, you will see things, if you read the entire thing beginning to end, you'll see a lot of themes in there that you miss when you just do like three chapters and stop and three chapters and one chapter or whatever. So really awesome thing to try and do. But today we're going to fly through basically the first half of it and, and kind of connect some of those dots. But one pattern that you'll see as you read in Mark is that everything Mark does is urgent. There's urgency to everything. Everyone is in a hurry. Mark uses phrases like these all the time. He uses at once, immediately, just then, and as soon as, all the time, throughout his work. So the story seems to feel like it's on fast forward. Mark also spends the first half of his book giving us hints of the messianic secret. Anyone have any idea what the messianic secret is? Well, yeah, it is Jesus. Okay, so the messianic secret... Mark has this whole thing where anytime someone figures out that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus always tells them 
to keep it a secret. So there's this whole theme in Mark that Jesus is always trying to keep himself on the down low. He's trying to keep under the radar as he does his ministry because he doesn't want to get famous and and have this giant crowd of people. So anytime he does something miraculous, Mark always says, Jesus told them to keep it a secret. So we see that all throughout uh, Scripture. The big thing to remember about Mark's gospel, though, is that it is not a biography like Luke, Luke and Matthew. Mark is a proclamation. Mark is not trying to write a detailed account about Jesus' life like Luke is, and Mark is not trying to show all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled like Matthew is. The difference with Mark is that Mark is making a proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. So Mark basically jumps right in with Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. So take your old-fashioned Bibles, open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Mark. When was the last time you heard that in church? Yeah, okay, so we're going to kind of fly through here. But you'll see right away, Mark just kind of jumps in with John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. He goes out into the wilderness. Mark spends all of one sentence telling us that Jesus was tempted by the devil and then starts his ministry. The first thing he does in the ministry is he says, Hey, I'm Jesus and the kingdom of God is near. You need to repent. And then right away, he calls his first four disciples. So that's what we're going to get into. The first thing at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he calls two sets of brothers who happen to all be fishermen. Now, there's some interesting parallels when you read this story in Mark 1. For starters, Mark doesn't make any mention that Jesus had performed any miracles or had done anything else except say the kingdom of God is near before he called Simon, Andrew, James, and John. So it's not like he's some really well-known guy that all four of these guys are be like, whoa, I know you, yeah, let's follow you. He's basically nobody at that point. And he's not necessarily uh, someone they're going to instantly recognize either. And Jesus also didn't have to spend any time convincing any of them to do it. So let's jump right in. Mark 1, verse 15. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now, then Jesus calls, the, uh, calls James and John almost the exact same way, but there's one big difference. So let's look at this. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, that's Jesus, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, it's clear that the Zebedee fishing business is doing pretty well. All right, they've got a boat. They're not just standing on the shore like... Uh, Peter and Andrew, or Simon and Andrew were, right? They've got a boat, they've got hired men, their dad's with them, it's a family business, which is pretty exciting, except until you realize that they've got to leave the family business, which is so much fun. Uh, So what you see here is that Zebedee, their, uh, their dad, is in the boat with them when Jesus calls them. Now, Mark's in too much of a hurry here to give us any detail, but basically one of two things happened. Either... Zebedee saw Jesus call them and was like, yep, you need to go. Just instantly knew, like, this is what my sons need to do. It's cool. Leave me with the hired guys all by myself. I'll be fine. Or there was some amazing family drama here that Mark just totally leaves out, okay? Imagine that. I don't know, I don't know how many of you work in a family-run business, but all the people I've ever known that work in family-run businesses say it's very hard to just walk away from them. So, yeah, fun stuff that Mark just doesn't tell us. But... 
If you're trying to start a religious movement, if the first thing you're doing is to call blue-collar fishermen, it's not a really good move. All right? Jesus didn't call his first four disciples because they graduated from the top of some synagogue class. Right? He didn't go to the local temple and put a sign out in the lobby and say, hey, I need the brightest and the smartest guys to come here that know everything about religion. I need you guys to sign up because I need some disciples. I need some people to teach. And trust me, you're going to be great. No, he did it very differently than that. So Jesus called these fishermen because he wanted disciples that weren't part of the religious way of thinking. And we see all the time through Jesus' ministry that he's always butting heads with the religious leaders. So he knew that if I go and get some guys that are already in this religious school and already think religiously and they're religious people, they're totally going to miss everything I'm doing. I need guys that have an open mind, that haven't had all these preconceived notions about who the Messiah is when he should come. That's why he calls the people he calls. So the next disciple that Jesus calls is a little bit more sensational. So we're going to jump now to Mark 2. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. Another theme here. He always calls disciples by the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. So when Jesus calls the first four disciples, he's alone, right? It's just Jesus, some guy nobody knows. When Jesus calls Levi, there is a crowd of people with him, all right? No pressure on Levi here, uh, but there's a crowd of people. And Levi, just so you guys know, isn't exactly the poster child for Jewish disciple candidates, okay? The guy is a tax collector. To give you some idea, tax collectors were so reviled, they had their own category of sinning. Okay, If you're not an expert on first century Roman occupation, let me just kind of set the scene. The reason tax collectors were so hated was because they were working for the Roman Empire. Right? So already they're kind of seen as traitors to their people because the Romans were occupying Israel and these people were working for them and paying them. The other problem is that Rome wasn't very good at regulating their tax collectors. So they could charge you whatever they felt like charging you and you would have to pay it or you'd be thrown in prison. Okay, This is not... This is not something that people really enjoyed. It's kind of like if you were to set up a table on your way into Sanford Stadium and go into like a Georgia football game, and that table was for the Crimson Tide Booster Association, okay? And you had required everyone as they're going in to see the Georgia Bulldogs to pay some money to the Crimson Tide Booster Association. As you can imagine, they weren't thrilled with this setup, okay? They didn't like it very much. And that's basically what was going on. So later, when Levi invites Jesus to his house, he also invites all of his friends over to meet. Wow. Okay. Hi there. A bug just landed right on my sermon. That was fun. Okay. Um, where was I? That got, threw me off. Okay. So he invites all of his friends over to meet Jesus. And the Pharisees see this and they say, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors. Only sinners is in quotes in that part. Like tax collectors, it's just assumed that they're just terrible people. Okay? So if we were to try and look at kind of like the 21st century equivalent, it would be like, why is he eating with drug addicts? Why is he eating with gangbangers? Why is he eating with that controversial reality star that's always on TV? All right? Why is he eating with that atheist? 
Why is he eating with people that I know aren't spiritual? He's supposed to be the spiritual leader and he's eating with these people that aren't spiritual. If Jesus was some great teacher, then he shouldn't be in the same room as those people. That's really how the Pharisees saw it. Those people. Because their lifestyle is going to somehow defile him. Right? Just hanging out with Levi and his friends with scandals. Not because Jesus couldn't handle the temptation of being around people that were kind of seedy, but because the Pharisees assumed all of those people were lost causes. Right? They were beyond saving. They were beyond spending time with. They were sinning. Their life was sin. There was no hope for any of them. The religious, the religious leaders of the day saw sin as an infection they had to avoid. All right? Lest they become infected themselves, right? I can't get too close to it. I might get the sin on me, and I don't want that. The difference with Jesus is Jesus saw sin as an infection that needed to be cured. Big difference there, isn't it? Jesus alone has the hope that changes the lives of the people that everyone else has given up on. Can I get an applause for that? Jesus doesn't give up on us. All right? And Jesus has not given up on you and he never will. He didn't need he doesn't need you to get to a certain level of morality before you're good enough to be around. Okay? That's not how Jesus operates. You're worthy of spending time with him no matter where you are on the good meter, right? No matter how good or bad you've been, Jesus wants to spend that time with you because he knows none of us can get to the point where we're good enough. None of us can get to the point where we've been behaving well enough to be worthy of being around God. I thank God that he loves us as we are and not as we should be. Imagine what our church would look like if we had the same mentality as the Pharisees did. Can you see that? Just, ugh. I don't want to sit by those sinners today. I just want to sit in my chair. I want to grab my coffee. I want to raise my hand. I want to praise the Lord. But I don't want to do it if it makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to do it with those people that aren't like me. Right? Their thought was, you know, go get yourselves right with God. Go stop sinning and then come back once you know how to raise your hands right and how to sit down and stand up when you need to. All right? Is that the kind of church that Jesus wanted? No. Is that the kind of church that Jesus wanted? No. no. I need good, strong responses. That's a good one. Okay. Church, let me tell you this. This is, this is super important. I'm going to lean in so you guys all know. I do this with the kids all the time so I know I have everybody's attention. And then I make eye contact with every single person. <laughs> Church, if we aren't willing to be uncomfortable in the rows that we're sitting in now, then something is terribly wrong. We have to be willing to sit next to someone who's different, who we think is not supposed to be here, who smells like they were at the club last night. I mean, whatever. Because that is the kind of church that Jesus wants. He doesn't want perfect people, right? Jesus made a huge sacrifice calling Levi to be a disciple because the religious leaders, I don't know if you know this, but the religious leaders could have excommunicated Jesus and all the other disciples for having Levi as part of his group. He could have been thrown out of every synagogue in Judea and Samaria just for having a tax collector in his posse. Okay, So Levi was kind of like religious and social poison to be in that group of disciples. 
And he would have raised the eyebrow of every influential Jewish leader just being in there. But Jesus called him anyway. Now, all in all, there were 12 disciples that were called. Um, You can find the list for them in Matthew uh, chapter 10, Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 6, and Acts chapter 1. The fun thing is, all these lists have different names, which is just confusing. But a lot of that is because a lot of people had both a a Jewish name and a Greek name. And then also, to make matters even more confusing, Jesus also gave a lot of them nicknames. So you never really quite know what's going on. I was wondering what the Sons of Thunder was all about, because he nicknamed James and John the Sons of Thunder. And some people think it's because they got angry. Some people think it's because they had a lot of gas. I don't know. Like, we never know why. They're just called the Sons of Thunder, and they just never... Anyway, I was debating telling that joke, but now I'm regretting it. So Jesus has this motley crew of, like, blue-collar fishermen, tax collectors and mobsters, and traitors. And then a majority, keep in mind, a majority of the disciples, we know like nothing about them, right? I mean, how many people know all of the tales of Simon the Zealot? We, like history has forgotten what most of these guys did. So when you look at this, it's not exactly a prime example of creating some sort of religious revolution with these 12 guys. But Jesus wasn't creating a typical revolution. So what Jesus does is he gathers all, all, all of these guys together and he starts to demonstrate his power. And he starts to do all kinds of miraculous things. And I'm not sure they saw any of these types of things when he was fishing. Okay, So Jesus, for instance, drives out spirits and has the authority to tell them not to speak and what to do. And they have to obey him. That's pretty crazy. Then he heals Simon and Andrew's mother's fever instantly. Then he heals people with all kinds of diseases. And then he restores a man with leprosy. And I don't know if you guys know anything about leprosy. But leprosy back then meant usually your fingers and your toes were falling off. So that means that if Jesus was restoring someone with leprosy, it means their fingers and toes miraculously reappeared on their hands. That's pretty big. I don't know that they've ever seen anything like that before. You can clap for restoring fingers and toes. That's cool. Sure. All right, And then he also makes a paralytic walk. And then he forgives sins, which I don't know if you know, but no one else had done that up until that point. Big deal. Okay, then he goes on. And then they're in a storm, and they're freaking out because the storm is really crazy. Jesus gets up and says, hey, waves, be still. They just go, and then they stop. So he calms the storm. And then after that, Jesus raises a girl from the dead. That's just five chapters of Mark. And they've seen all these amazing things. It's crazy. So I think it's safe to say that the disciples saw some amazing things. And now that the disciples have seen all these amazing things, Jesus decides to do what any good pastor of a flock would do. He organizes a short-term missions trip for the disciples. How many of you have been on a short-term missions trip? Three of you in the entire... Really? few? Okay, a couple. So i gotta, I got to spend a little bit more time on short-term missions trips now. So you guys know. Now, short-term mission trips, they could be like two days. You could be like going to the inner city. They could be like a week. You could be going out of the country, something like that. But basically, the the whole point of a short-term mission trip is to get you out of your comfort zone and into something to to kind of experience where Jesus is working in in a way that's not familiar. And it really, what it does almost every time is it really grows your faith because it pushes you out of your comfort zone and requires you to do things and, and experience things that you don't see when you're just going through your daily routine. And, and that's what Jesus wants for his disciples. 
So there's something about a missions trip that can really be a tipping point spiritually for those that are on there. And Jesus knows that the disciples have enough firsthand knowledge of his power now to tell other people about it. So in Mark chapter 6, he sends them out. All right, so now we're in Mark chapter 6, verse 8. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, that's important, we'll hit that in a second, no bag, no money in your belts, we'll also hit that, so don't forget, no bread, no, no money. Wear your sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. Then they went out and preached that the people should repent. Remind you, they're not preaching something super complicated. They're not giving a five-point sermon as to why Jesus is the disciple. They're just preaching people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So there's a couple interesting things here I don't want you to miss. The big one is Jesus spent time preparing the disciples to be sent out. All right? They didn't go to some weekend seminar to meet and greet with Jesus, and at the end of it, he gets them all fired up, and he's like, okay, guys, you've been with me for a day and a half. Let's do this. That's not how Jesus operated. Okay, Jesus demonstrated his power again and again in a variety of ways because he knew the disciples had to see all that before they were ready to share what they had seen. Okay? And Jesus also pairs up his disciples. This is a really important thing. Because that, that did two things. One, you weren't going on the mission trip alone to some village by yourself. That's never fun. But also, because back in the first century, you needed two people to act as witnesses for each other to prove that anything happened. Okay? You, didn't, you weren't able to just post a picture of Andrew exercising a demon on Instagram to prove that it happened. You had to have someone say, yes, I saw that, and someone else say, yes, I saw it too. So the two-by-two two thing was really important because when you go into a small village and no one's heard of Jesus and they're like, hey, you know, Jesus calmed the storm. And they're like, no way. And the other guy's like, actually, he did. I was in the boat. That proves it. But for us, I mean, that's, that's still true today when you think about it because if someone gets on the news and they're like, I was there, I saw it. There was a lot that came down. I saw a UFO. It was, the, it was flashing and then it just took off. I don't know why that came out as a southern accent, but it did. Um, The the problem is you're not going to really believe that person, right? Because no one else saw it. We still have that same idea today. Like, pick or it didn't happen. Two people saw it or it didn't happen. That's, That's the way we think. So the other really big takeaway is that Jesus prepares them for what to do when people don't believe them. Which, I mean, it must have been really hard for the disciples to understand. I mean, how could people not want to hear this message? How could could you come into a town and heal a sick person and someone not believe you? How could you come in and drive out demons and people not think you're for real? But Jesus knew that some people's hearts would be hard and that people would just think they were con artists, right? They'd just be like, well, I'm sure you set that up. That guy wasn't really sick. You just healed him and he faked it, right? He knew that there's always going to be people that don't do that. It's kind of like, I don't know if any of you have ever been bold enough to share your personal testimony with someone at work, right? And your coworker is just staring at you blankly like this, right? You ever, you're just trying to talk to him, and you're like, Karen, you know, Jesus has just done so much in my life, and you just get, you get the blank stare. It's like, come on, Karen. You know how long I listen to you go on and on about essential oils? <laughs> Nothing. 
Jesus knows that there are some people, no matter what you say, they're not going to believe it. They're going to be skeptical, no matter what they see. Okay? The other thing, too, is that Jesus also wants them to be totally reliant on God in their journey. Okay? They don't have any kind of cushion if things don't work out. If someone doesn't give them food, they go hungry. If someone doesn't invite them into their house, they sleep on the street. I mean, there's no wiggle room here and like, oh, well, tonight it didn't work out so I can take my bread and eat it. Jesus wants them to be totally reliant on God during their journey. So Jesus sends them out. And while that's happening, Mark, not to waste any time, cuts to the whole story about Herod and John the Baptist. And long story short, Herod has John the Baptist executed. It's really terrible. Things are terrible. Someone gets worms and dies. Okay? So then we come right back. So we come right back to... We come right back to Jesus re-encountering the disciples. They come right back, and something really big happens here when they come back. So, it's uh, in, in chapter 6, verse 30. Look at your Bibles really quick. Who can see the big change that's happened here that Mark uses? Apostles. Somebody got it. So, Mark doesn't call them disciples here. He calls them apostles. The difference between a disciple and an apostle is an apostle someone who's been sent out and has actually done something. That's a huge difference here. So Mark is basically saying like, hey, the disciples are now apostles because they were sent out and they did it and they came back to report on what Jesus has done. This is actually the only time the disciples are referred to as apostles in the entire Bible because they've actually gone out and done something. And you can tell that they actually did a pretty good job about spreading the word about Jesus because there's now a huge crowd that follows him wanting to see Jesus. And that leads us to the most well-known miracle in the Bible. Who knows the miracle that's coming up next? Feeding of the 5,000, right? So the feeding of the 5,000. Now, where they are, where they are in, um, I'm blanking on the word, uh, just north of the Sea of Galilee, it's a really remote place and there's just a bunch of sparse little villages. It's hard for us to imagine now when we're living in the suburbs of Atlanta, just like sparse little villages. But most of these villages probably had, you know, two dozen, three dozen people in them, maybe a hundred gathered here or there, and they were scattered throughout. So Jesus is really strategic here, because instead of him going to each tiny village and spending a day there, he calls the disciples out, and they basically spread the word. And all these villages and all these people combined come in, and there's 5,000 men plus all the women and children. So probably about 10,000 people, okay? So the disciples did a really good job of spreading the word for Jesus, but that becomes a little bit of a problem as we read on. So um, I know for probably most of you, how many of you have heard a feeding of the 5,000 sermon at least once? If you've been in church for more than a year, you probably get one. So I'm not going to spend a bunch of time. You could, you could easily spend one sermon or five sermons on the feeding of the 5,000. There's a lot there. I'm just going to look at the interactions between the disciples and Jesus in this miracle as we go through it. So... Jesus, uh, Jesus' promise seems to be coming true from the disciples. They're bringing in guys by the net load, right? There, there's so many people coming to meet Jesus now. It, the, the disciples are thinking, wow, we, we're really doing good at this, okay? So the disciples have done their job. They were sent out by Jesus. They told all the towns and villages. Now there's this huge crowd gathered in the middle of nowhere listening to Jesus teach. And Jesus teaches them all day until it gets really late, and my guess is the disciples were getting pretty hungry because actually the text even says the disciples hadn't eaten yet. And they start realizing 
that Jesus has a crowd of hungry people that have been there all day. Now, how many of you are like me and you can get a little hangry sometimes? All right? So the disciples kind of start doing the math. They're like, wait a minute. We're in a really remote area. Everyone's really hungry. There's like 10,000 hungry people. Eventually, they're going to get really mad that they can't eat. Right? And so the disciples realize that unless everyone's going to eat the grass they're sitting on, we're in trouble. Like, so they go up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And this seems like a, a pretty sensible request until you realize that we've got thousands of people and all these tiny little villages, right? Imagine 5,000 people going into a village of 25 people to try and get food. It would be kind of like if you were at an Atlanta Braves game and SunTrust decided to only have one concession stand open. All right? This is not going to end well if that happens. Imagine the riots that would ensue if people couldn't get their hot dogs. Okay? So Jesus knows that's not a good idea because that would happen. So instead, he literally decides to play a joke on his disciples, which I love if you read it this way. Jesus looks at the disciples, looks at the crowd and goes, you give them something to eat. And so they respond with, Jesus, are you crazy? Look how many people there are. There's no way we'd have to, you know how much money we'd need to buy food for everybody? You know how long it would take to go to all the villages and get it? And here, what I want you guys to see is that the disciples miss one really big point. Okay? They had just been on this missions trip, right? When Jesus sent them out, what did he tell them to leave behind? Who remembers? Bread and what else? Money, right? So they'd learned how to be in God's provision without bread or money. But the first chance they get to actually put, that, put some rubber to the road there, they go, we don't have any bread and we don't have any money. What are we going to do? That's their knee-jerk response. And so the disciples basically forgot that anything they ate Anywhere they slept was all part of God's provision. God was providing through other people. But the disciples hadn't really connected those dots yet. They hadn't figured out that God could provide in all these ways and infinitely more. So they still doubt that God can provide in this quantity because all they had experienced was personal provision. All right? Now, is that you? Can I stop for a second and ask? Is that you? Has there been a time when you've just seen miraculous provision in your life, something happened, there was no other way that you could give glory to God. But the next month, your rent comes due, it's not enough in the bank account, and you panic. That cycle happens so often because we forget how God's provision works. And we forget that it's happened, even if it just happened a day or a week or a month ago. It's so quick to just have that default response be, I don't know what to do. What can I do? Jesus wants to teach the disciples about God's infinite provision here. He wants them to understand that God can provide anything from what seems like nothing. So what does Jesus do? For those of you who know the story, right? Takes the loaves, takes the fish, breaks them, and who does he have distribute the food? The disciples, right? Which is really cool because he literally makes them like first-hand account 
of passing out this miracle. And try to imagine this, if you've ever thought about it. 5,000 people, okay? This room has about 250, so times... I can't do math, but there's a lot of them, okay? So imagine the disciples get a basket with like one or two loaves of bread in it, and they break a piece off, and they hand it, and they break a piece off, and they hand it, and they break a piece off, and they hand it, and they break a piece... Whoa! This just keeps going! Hey! Wow! You have some bread! You have some bread! This is awesome! And they're just breaking it off, and they're like, whoa, this is so cool! Jesus did that because he wanted them to have first-hand knowledge of understanding. Like, I am literally distributing a miracle. I am literally doing something right now that I thought was not possible that is possible. Right? He wanted that to sink in because if you know anything about the human brain, we remember 90% of what we experience. You'll find, though, that the disciples were part of that 10%. Okay? Because they instantly forgot. All right? So, basically... They see the marvel of the miracle, but their hearts just don't grasp why Jesus is able to do the impossible. And when I say impossible, let's go to the next story. Because the next story after the feeding of the 5,000, who knows what it is? Jesus walks on water. You don't get more crazy impossible than that, right? Okay, so if you don't know that story, I'll fly through that one really quick. So the disciples, they're going in the boat. There's a storm. They're like, oh, we're going to die. And then they see, oh, it's a ghost. And then it's like, no, I'm Jesus. And Jesus is like, all right, guys, I climb into the boat with you. He climbs into the boat, and they all freak out. And then the waves calm down. I'm supposed to read this out of Scripture. Sorry. So then he climbed into the boat, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. You may not know these stories are connected that way. But Jesus was basically saying like, you guys don't understand. You guys don't understand everything I can do. It's because I'm God. But they're still not getting it. So ask yourself one question. How could the disciples experience these kind of amazing miracles? We're talking people rising from the dead, demons being cast out, impossible provision, calming of storms, walking on water, all these things. How could they, under, how could they experience that and not understand that Jesus is God? It just doesn't add up, okay? They've gone through all of this and they're still not getting it. I don't know how Jesus didn't land that boat and say, guys, you know, we've given this a good shot. Um... I don't think this is going to work out. I think we're going to need to go a different way. Um, I was really hoping you'd get it by now, and you're not. So uh, good luck out there. Good luck with your fishing. I'm going to go find some new disciples. But, but Jesus doesn't do that. Okay, these guys seem to keep missing every lesson Jesus is teaching them, but Jesus doesn't give up the same way that he does not give up on you. Give him a clap of praise for that. All right? That's the God we serve. A God that never gives up. When we miss the miraculous and we shortchange his provision, God still uses us, which is crazy. So now let's jump over to Mark 8. So Jesus decides, okay, we're going to try this again. He gives them another chance to rely on his provision with another big crowd. This time that crowd's been fasting. They're all weak. And the situation's even more dire. But what do the disciples say? How do the disciples respond? His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed them? I mean, come on, guys. Were you not there for the 5,000? 
wouldn't you just be like, hey, Jesus, remember last time when you fed everyone with nothing? Can we do that again? But they've already forgotten it in one, in one chapter. It just, it's amazing to me. So Jesus does the whole miracle for a second time. And again, the people ate and they're satisfied. And you'd think that the disciples would have remembered. But again, the truth of who Jesus is just isn't registering with them. Nothing's clicking yet. And then comes what I believe is the stupidest thing the disciples ever say to Jesus. So if you need proof that the disciples were a bunch of bumbling buffoons, you need to look no further than Mark 8, verses 14 through 21, because it is by far the stupidest thing that anyone could ever say to the living God. Okay? You think you've said something stupid before. I doubt it compares with the stupidity of these 12 men. Okay? So let me kind of set the stage here. So Jesus feeds the 4,000, He sends the disciples into a boat, and before he gets in the boat, he has a kind of a run-in with the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees come up to Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, we need a sign. And he's like, dude, I just fed 4,000 people. (laughs) They don't get it. So the disciples get in the boat, and they realize between the 12 of them, they've only got one loaf of bread to feed all 12 of them. And they think, what are we going to do? And Jesus gets in the boat, all right? And so they all kind of panic, because they're like, man, there's one loaf for 12 of us and Jesus. What's happening here? And Jesus gets in, kind of flustered from the Pharisees, and he says to them, he says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. And the disciples all look at each other. And they look at the bread. And then they look at Jesus. And then they look at each other. And they look at the bread. And they look at Jesus, and they look at the Pharisees. They look at Jesus, they look at each other, they look at the bread. And they go, it's because we forgot the bread. Oh, we didn't bring enough bread, and Jesus is mad. Right? I, so I try and like, think about that. I try and think of what Jesus' facial expression must have looked like when the disciples did that. I think it probably looks something like this. Okay? The disciples were idiots. Okay? These guys just weren't getting it. So Jesus does whatever you do. How many of you have teenagers that just make stupid decisions or say stupid things? Any of you? Okay? Whoa, put put your hand down, Dad. I love that. Okay, so Jesus lectures his disciples. And this is probably one of the biggest tongue lashings that he gives the disciples throughout Scripture because he's just, you could tell, he's just kind of fed up with what they're saying. He says, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't... You remember. When I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? You can kind of hear their tone and their response. It's like a bunch of teenagers looking at the floor. Twelve. <laughs> and when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? Seven. Right? They said to him, he said to them, do you still not Understand. Why isn't this clicking with you guys? This was then followed with what I can only imagine was the most awkward silence in a boat in the history of the Bible. Just row in the boat. Jesus is mad. Okay. <laughs> Jesus' frustration shows through here because it seems like no matter how many miraculous signs and wonders the disciples see, they just don't get that he is the Messiah. But the big idea today 
The thing I want you to understand is that Jesus has never been in the business of using perfect people. And the disciples are definitely the example you want to look at when he's using imperfect people. You may be thinking that God's not going to use you because you're divorced or because you're prone to depression or you're from a small town that no one's heard of. Right? But that's exactly why God wants to use you. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus wants you to know that you don't have to have everything figured out to be a disciple of Jesus that's used by him. Because Jesus doesn't want religious experts. Jesus wants grace experts. He wants people who have experienced forgiveness and in turn can share that grace and forgiveness with other people. Each one of the men Jesus called was on a journey that even after three years of living with him, they didn't have everything figured out. So don't beat yourselves up because you're not perfect. And don't let your flaws and your past stop you from having the relationship that God wants you to have with him. And if it took you a while maybe to realize and recognize that you needed Jesus, or even today maybe you're sitting here and you're still on the fence, you're like, I don't know if this Jesus is really for me. That's okay. Because I guarantee that you have not witnessed as many miracles as Peter witnessed. And he still realized that Jesus was God in the flesh and that he came to earth to save us. Eventually, all the disciples got it. Eventually, it clicked with Peter, and he confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. Just a couple verses later, Peter finally says, you are the Christ. And that's followed right up with Jesus saying, keep it a secret. But then, once Peter did that, it marked this turning point for Jesus. Once the disciples understood, it marked a turning point where Jesus starts saying, now that you guys know who I am, I need to tell you what I'm here to do. I'm here to suffer and die for the sins of humanity. And good old Peter, the first thing he does when he hears that, no, you're not, God! There's no way God would have you do that. I rebuke you. Good old Peter, man. But boy, did God use Peter anyway, huh? Even then, Peter continues to miss the point of much of this stuff. That should give you some comfort. That even if you're in a relationship with God and sometimes you blow it, or sometimes you don't see God where you need to see him, that happens. It's not the end. God wants to also use you like he used Levi. Do you think Levi had a checkered past? The guy was a mobster, okay? The guy was a first century mobster. And Jesus called him anyway. Even though it meant that Jesus was risking being thrown out of synagogues and no one associating with anybody around him just because of that one disciple. Even though Levi's friends were all sinners and tax collectors, Jesus went to hang out with them anyway. And even though the disciples were criticized... And they, the Pharisees criticized Jesus for eating a meal with Levi and all of his friends. Jesus did it anyway. Because you know what? He said this to the Pharisees. He said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. God wants to use you because of your past. 
not in spite of it. What you have been through and the journey you've been on allow you to witness to somebody going through similar trials and hardships. Jesus didn't want a kingdom of fake people pretending to be righteous. He wanted people who had experienced grace. He wanted people who had a redemption story to tell, broken people that weren't perfect because the perfect people were missing the point. So he used people just like you and me. Jesus came to call sinners into his kingdom because he saw that the more righteous someone thought they were, the less they thought they needed a relationship with the Almighty God. Do you have a relationship with the Almighty God? Jesus came to earth and died so that you could have that relationship. And Jesus wants you to confess him as the Lord of your life. And today I want to give us some time to do that as we close. I want you to remember that the sole purpose for Jesus coming here was for you to have a relationship with God. So let's all bow together. As we sit here for a minute, I want you to remember that Jesus doesn't expect perfection. He doesn't expect you to have all the answers before you come to him. He doesn't expect you to have everything figured out and get right before you're worthy of being in this church and being with other believers because we're all on a journey. So I, I want to give you a chance right now to pray a prayer to receive Christ. And I don't want things stopping you by saying, well, you know, last week you looked at that stuff you shouldn't have looked at. Or you went to that place or hung out with those people that you shouldn't have hung out with. I don't think, I don't think Jesus wants that. I don't think Jesus could want me. Maybe there's something in your past that's so bad you can't tell anybody about it. Jesus died for that sin. He died for you. So with every head bowed, let's pray this prayer. You can pray it out loud with me. You can pray it silently. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming to this world and dying for my sins. Thank you for living a perfect life and tolerating imperfect people. I confess my sins and know that you have forgiveness for me. Please come into my life and lead me to your purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name.